Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, of course. I am Adam Lowther, along with Jim Petrosky and Curtis hello. McGiffin. Why, hello there, Curtis. Uh, thanks for that exuberant uh, hello. Uh, Jim, you've said you've had a, a headache all day, so uh, we'll expect yeah, you. Yeah, I'll be reserved. That's a good idea. <laughs> uh, so we've had quite a bit. There's been testimony as of late by... For example, General Richardson of Southcom, uh, General Van Herc of Northcom. We've had some other testimony on the the China panel that is discussing, in particular, China's role in Latin America. And, of course, China is extending the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI across Latin America and is buying up public utilities uh, in Mexico, for example. 80% of the telecommunications infrastructure is provided by China. Uh, And of course, nothing could go wrong with that, obviously. And, you know, if you go over a continent away to Africa, China is providing a lot of free Uh, computer systems for governments, and obviously there would be no embedded malware in any of that. So as we think about the Western Hemisphere, in particular Latin America and Chinese initiatives, this, of course, brings to mind there's this little thing a couple hundred years ago a guy named uh, Monroe, you may have heard of him. He was a U.S. president where he clearly said that, hey, this is our hemisphere. And so it makes me think of, you know, what is the U.S. role in the Western Hemisphere today? We've been so focused in in the Middle East for the first two decades of this century. And now we're sort of the Asia-Pacific pivot, which took place under President Obama. And we now, we don't just have PACOM, we have Indo-PACOM. So we're clearly trying to focus to the Pacific and focus on Asia, although we have yet to call China an adversary. But now we're having to look into our own backyard and wonder, is the Monroe Doctrine still relevant? Are we looking for another Cuban Missile Crisis in the years ahead? Or is this just China giving to us what we have done to them across Asia you know, for the, since 1945. So lots of opinions on it, lots of views, and we'll spend about the next 27 minutes talking about it. So, Jim, you're leaning into the mic. What say no, you? Thank you, Adam, and I, I appreciate that. And, and for our listeners, yeah, there's there's a lot of news about uh, China's presence in our hemisphere. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a new issue for us to deal with, a peer competitor traveling into the region but it seems like china's doing something very similar they did in indonesia where they're 
buying assets or lending money, uh, building infrastructure. All those things are good, I guess. Um, but it's somewhat concerning some of the areas they're working in. And I don't know if our listeners have been on top of this, but, you know, looking at a space station that possibly can uh, uh, can rival uh, communications and tracking, et cetera, from very close region. Uh, and then also just buying out information, et cetera, that is so close to the United States. It makes one step back and pause and say, what's, you know, what's the plan and how are we going to respond to this? Um, it's a little, a little bit more difficult. Actually, on the, on the March 7th, I think someone, uh, China came out in, 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 a, in a report and said, they're concerned the United States is trying to encircle and contain China. And yet China is expanding in all directions. So uh, what do you do? You're expanding. We're concerned about that expansion and, and what it, you know, how it uh, uh, implies uh, uh, our stability in our hemisphere. And I think that's the biggest problem from a deterrent standpoint. What do you know, what are we doing to make sure that we can maintain the stability and, you know, sort of the norms in the, in the, in the world? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's an interesting conundrum, right? Because you have to, we, we have a tendency as Americans to mirror image. And so we, we, of, of course, see ourselves as inherently good. And then we don't understand why the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians don't see the world the way we do. And so in many respects, the Chinese have legitimate concerns. I mean, we're, we press them on Tibet. We've pressed them hard on Tibet. We've pressed them on the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We've pressed them on Hong Kong. We're saying that we're, you know, we're on the Korean Peninsula. We're clearly saying we will defend Taiwan, which they consider an internal issue. And so there is a certain amount of, hey, you're mucking around in our backyard. So why, why can't we muck around in yours? And you mentioned uh, space. They have a sort of an advanced station, space observation station in Argentina, for example, that, you know, we wonder, could that be used for military purposes as opposed to just looking at the stars? And, you know, we, we don't quite know, of course, because you it's, it's hard to tell. And they're building quite a, you know, they they're heavily involved in the Panama Canal. After we turned that over, the Chinese were one of the first to move in. And so the Chinese, in many respects, are as heavily involved in Latin America as we are in Asia. And so some would argue that, hey, this is just, you know, it's turnabout, it's fair play. What what would you say, Curtis? Well, thanks. Um, I just want to clarify, you did say mucking with an M, right? Mucking around in our backyard. Yes, um, mucking, so, <laughs> mucking around. So yes. yeah, I, I think your your premise is spot on, Adam. Uh, you know, this is sort of uh, turnabout is fair play. Uh, the best defense is a good offense. Um, and yes, the Monroe Doctrine is is. Uh, you know, I would say that one of the strengths that America has always enjoyed over the centuries. Uh, is the, the geographical position and the two large oceans that sort of isolate uh, the United States from the sort of, um, of, 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 we don't have a border threat, so to speak. 
because of these large ice, uh, 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 oceans that, that separate us from our adversaries. But this isn't the case when we look at the isthmus down south into the South American continent. And so for an adversary that really wants to harass us uh, or worse, threaten us, um, overcoming that geographical obstacle of the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean is key, right? So getting close on a landmass to which they can threaten us, much as the Russians did, uh, the Soviets did in the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, has some real risk. And so I think for the Chinese, they're really looking at this in, uh, in, in two different ways. One of them is, is of course, uh, you know, they have this voracious appetite for energy and minerals in order to uh, continue their goals uh, uh, to, you know, become these these global leaders in these in these areas or to fuel their the economy that they need through the Belt and Road Initiative. And then, of course, the other is to continue to figure out how to get closer to us and in place and hold us at risk uh, or at least divert our attention away from trying to contain them. And, uh, and I think to some extent um, uh, it's working. Uh, we are or have been as a nation ignoring um, our, our neighbors to the South for a long time. And it's created great uh, geopolitical and possibly even economic challenges. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good point. And I, I wonder, you know, one of the arguments that I've often thought of, and I'll, I'll give you a, uh, in the experience I actually had, this was probably, I don't know, six years ago or so. And it, you know, I spent almost a decade at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, and I was hosting the Chilean Chief Air Force Chief of Staff. And we were talking about, you know, my specialty is, is China. And I asked him how the work with China was going in terms of they had, they were the largest purchaser of Chilean copper and they were purchasing about 80% of Chile's copper. And he said, well, you know, it was great at first because they paid, you know, they paid international uh, prices for copper. But after those initial contracts, the Chinese sort of put the screws to us and drove prices way down once we became dependent upon the Chinese for purchasing our copper. And so now uh, there's a lot of regret about essentially getting in bed with the Chinese. And so I've heard this from as I've dealt with that. folks uh, you know, from Africa over the years. They've said, hey, you know, it was it was was sort of a panacea in the beginning. And then the reality hits where, for example, the Chinese, whenever they come to build these sort of large infrastructure projects, they'll bring their own workers. And then once the project is done, they leave their workers. And so now you have these large Chinese communities that, you know, for, you know, China, the only way you can become uh, or that to be a Chinese citizen is to be ethnically Chinese. So the concept of somebody that's not ethnically Chinese can come to China and become a citizen, that doesn't exist. Uh, you can gain, gain citizenship in Hong Kong, but you can't become Chinese. 
And so there is this very strong cultural and ethnic ties that you've now exported to all these other countries. And so if you look across Micronesia, China, now you have all these, what are now citizens of these Micronesian countries that the China, the ethnic Chinese who are now citizens are now shaping the electoral outcomes uh, and, and voting blocks. They've shifted voting in countries because relatively small countries, but they're strategically important. And so the question then is, is a lot of African countries, you know, the, the case, my own experience with Chile, they've had bad experiences, but if you look at where they're going, they tend to go to authoritarian regimes. So a Peronist, Argentina, Venezuela, uh, other places that, for example, they have the world's largest embassy in the Bahamas, which, you know, that's not far off the U S coast and we don't have a permanent ambassador there. So that's problematic. So the Chinese can, the idea is that either the Chinese can be their own worst enemy or they can be, you know, very strategic. And it's, I think the jury's out as to, should we just let them be their own worst enemy? So that as has actually happened in some cases, those who have dealt with the Chinese come running back to us because they're saying, well, you know, we thought the Americans were bad, but when you deal with the Chinese, they're really bad. So let's deal with the Americans again. Do we let that happen? Or do the Chinese get better and better at this over time such that uh, people will deal with the Chinese and then we've got a problem that it's too late to fix? And I'm not sure what that solution is. Adam, uh, yeah, you bring up a good point that uh, China has been very good at using the global economy as a tool to be able to shape strategy and policy uh, in their favor. And that seems to work very well to, uh, to them. Um, I would say that, you know, when you look back at the sort of the Monroe Doctrine philosophy, things are a little bit different now just because we are better interconnected with, uh, you know, I wouldn't say we didn't have a global economy then, but we certainly have become more globalized since then. We are more interconnected. We have more uh, more interest in each other, and I think that plays to China's favor in this in, in this way. In that they can say we are helping out South America. We are doing good things, and it sort of goes back to what Curtis had said. You know, coming in and investing in infrastructure, it's a it's a good thing um, for uh, the the South. It's when it's just like our credit you know, a credit card. It's great having a credit card. I can go out and buy all the things I want. But then when that bill comes at the end of the month, now someone's got to pay it. And that's where that's where it sort of becomes a little bit interesting. It, the question is, are we connected well enough in our strategy and our economic strategy, our political strategy, even in our military strategy, to be able to account for the differences that are going to occur in South America as China involves themselves? And so I agree with you. I don't I don't really see a clear output at present. There may be a very clear strategic plan. But again, if you you go back and look at national security strategy, et cetera, you just don't see a lot of that in there. So um, and that's that's my concern from a deterrent standpoint, because I just want to keep things at peace. And every time you give someone an opening, um, it, it seems to be something that can be taken away from that piece. So I'll say that. There's nothing altruistic uh, 
to a Chinese strategy around the globe. They are not generally concerned with the health and welfare and the economic growth of um, Venezuela or Chile or any of the other Brazil or any of the other countries uh, that are players out there. They are only interested in access, influence, right, and uh, and and economic uh, uh, advancement, for lack of a better term. And and so, what does this mean? Well. Uh, access um, gets them into the locations, right? The geopolitical locations that allow them to build space station monitoring capability in Argentina, for example, um, uh, port facilities, uh, controlling of major uh, uh, lines of communication like the Panama Canal. Uh, so there's that. There's influence. They're buying influence. Every, it, it, it was interesting to note that Many of the countries in Latin America, for some reason, were still diplomatically acknowledging Taiwan as an independent nation. And many of them have since changed that perspective after the Chinese have come in and uh, done the Belt and Road Initiative actions um, and basically bought their influence. So this is swaying uh, the geopolitical uh, uh, support as as they're as they're thinking in ways to to strip Taiwan of its legitimacy in any eyes any in any national perspective. But Curtis, wouldn't you say that? And then, wouldn't you say yeah. that that is a strategy to use the moral no, high ground as a step in the door, right. and then to yeah. and then yeah. to buy your buy or make your influence based upon you know the dependence on you as a quote benefactor. Um, soon to be right. bill payer, soon to be tax collector. Exactly. So you have access, influence, and then the last one is advancement. So they're always still looking to grow their economy, to fuel their needs for energy, no pun intended. Well, I guess it was intended, um, to uh, to garner and corner the market in lithium and other uh, cobalt, copper, and other precious minerals uh, that Latin America has, because if they own the mines, then the United States or anyone else can't. And so this is why, and they'll buy these things at losses uh, in order to secure them uh, in such a way. And then, uh, and so once they have those three things, uh, they can uh, basically sort of will their way through. The last thing I'll throw in here is, is this, this idea of world trade in the sense of uh, globalization. So the World Trade Organization, uh, you know, invited China into it uh, about one week after the 9-11 attacks in 2001. And since then, China has grown tremendously uh, thanks to the international trade system. In Latin America alone, uh, the amount of trade that has occurred uh, with China and the Latin American Caribbean area has gone up 26-fold uh, from uh, from a, a, tr- a tremendous number of, what, 12 billion to 315 billion in climbing. Uh, some are estimating a 700, a 700 billion trade here by, uh, by 2030. Uh, these are numbers that rival the U.S. Uh, and so... Um, uh, that's a lot of access, influence, and advancement. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, yeah. So, Adam, I, I was going to ask you a question because it sort of uh, fits on this uh, influence. And since you were 
you follow the Navy a lot closer than I do. But uh, my other concern when you look at it from the Monroe Doctrine standpoint is on maritime and sea access. And, you know, we we sort of depend, you know, we, we have it nice here and, you know, being so far away from from our adversaries and having uh, open, you know, open uh, uh, sea lanes, uh, ease of movement, et cetera. Um, do you see that also as a, a component that may influence us? I mean, right now we're, you know, thinking of the Panama Canal and the Straits of Magellan, both having strong Chinese influence in those regions. Well, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, if you've read, uh, there's a guy named Peter Zehan who's written uh, two or three books, The Accidental Superpower, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And one of the things that he says, and he may or may not be right, is that we're in a period of deglobalization. And one of the big things that he says is going to get much more precarious is international shipping that it will become much harder and much more expensive because, and I think he's right about this. He said that, Hey, our global prosperity has largely been fueled by the very inexpensive costs of, of shipment by sea. And one of the prime examples of that is the American steel industry. So it is cheaper to mine ore in the United States, put the raw product on ships, send it to Japan where it's processed into steel, and then ship it back to the United States and sell it as a finished product. And then this is equally true of China. That's China has now replaced Japan as is the destination for this. So we can ship it what is that, five, 7,000 miles away and then bring it back? And that's cheaper than having Americans in steel manufacturing mills in your Pennsylvania, Jim. And let me just ask you, uh, do you know what Pennsylvania is, Jim? Yeah, I, I think I've been there once or twice. It's, it's Pittsburgh and oh, Philadelphia yeah. with Alabama in the middle. And I think that's where you're from is that Alabama part, Jim. Yeah, I'm so actually that's where all the steel Amish mills country, are. which isn't in Alabama, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that that's the reality. That's sort of what international shipping and its and its inexpensiveness has, has been able to do. I mean, that's crazy that you can do that. That you can put it on trains to put it on ships to ship it seven thousand miles to then mill it, then bring it back, and it's cheaper. But that's my and point. Then China's, is that that, that, yeah. was, that was my point is that you lose that maritime trade capability. That has a huge economic impact. And so it's part of this economic, if you will, warfare that's playing out if we start to get strangled in, in that region. Yeah. So, but my thought is that it's going to get more expensive for the Chinese because if, if costs go up, then China's ability to, you know, manufacture steel really, really cheaply and then ship it to and fro, that gets harder. And then as it tries to influence the Western Hemisphere, perhaps that gets more expensive and more challenging. So let me, and, uh, let, me let me add to that argument because I'm not sure I'm uh, – I take your point. Uh, I would argue that it maybe isn't so much that the shipping is cheaper, but it is still the labor 
and the purchase power parity that goes on in China, the fact that they can do everything at about 10 cents on the dollar in comparison to uh, the U.S. Or, or Western democracies. And, and that is so cheap that it, even with the cost of shipping, it's still cheaper than doing it here. And that's done on, it's done on, plus when you add in slave labor and child labor and all the other, you know, uh, you know, sin that goes on in that sense, um, it, it, it makes the, the, the costs uh, just really, really uh, inexpensive. And it's designed to do that, to, to suppress and even destroy uh, these capabilities in the nations that China considers to be adversaries. Yeah, I mean that was the whole point of steel. It's sort of it's the Starbucks it's the Starbucks method of growth, mm-hmm. where Starbucks some odd years ago, this was probably fifteen twenty years ago, as it was trying to grow and become the dominant, you know, coffee house in the country, you would have a like a local sort of coffee house or a local chain or whatever, and Starbucks would put you know, if that coffee house is on one corner, Starbucks would put three Starbucks, even though there was only support for one, it put three so that it could drive the, the local chain out of business. And then it would close two of its three, and then it would be the only coffee house, you know, around. And so the Chinese are clearly, they're suppressing the value of, of the Yuan. They clearly engage in that kind of economic and they've suppressed you know, consumption in China for, to boost savings. Now there, they, you know, there's belief that there's a bubble in China. There's a debt bubble. I remember the one of the times I was in China, I was in Chungsha and I counted all these high rise, you know, condo apartment buildings and just walking down the river, I counted 70,000 units you know, just because I could, you, know, you could count how many, how many per building versus how many buildings. Okay, you did so some you, math. You didn't count each one individually. I, I no, 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 I didn't count each one. I did, did a little bit of basic math, and it was about seventy thousand units, uh, and it was all all brand new, n- not occupied. And so you have these ghost cities in mm-hmm. China because, mm-hmm. and you're having some of them collapse because of low quality work, but the you know there there has been this really strong effort that is now coming to fruition in the Western hemisphere. And you're seeing the, you know, the, the Russians can no longer provide Venezuela or Cuba, what they need. They've largely pulled back because they don't have the capacity. And so the Chinese are stepping in or they're stepping into a Peronist uh, Argentina. And, you know, you've got in countries like Bolivia, you've got sort of, left of, you know, there's been a big move to the left here lately in Latin America, and there's sort of an ideological affinity with the Chinese. And this is creating a lot of turmoil. And the question is, what do we do that? And, and I don't know how you deter it or defeat it. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. I, yeah. So, so, I, you know, we're talking about this, the, the, the economy and how we can, uh, and how China might be able to take advantage of the cheaper labor. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go Mad Max on you. By the way, see, I I, I mentioned like a movie that's probably it's, a movie. it's an old movie, but it's still a movie. Away. But anyway, 
So I, I wasn't Jesus in that movie. <laughs> no, it was the guy that made Jesus. Yeah. The something movie like that. Jesus. Yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, um, but I, I see that what's really driving the future and our future of cost is energy. And uh, you can see China's doing a lot in, in purchasing you know, a lot of the precious metals that are needed for a new green economy or a new, uh, a, a new economy based on solar uh, energy. But I'm, uh, I, I want to bring things back home. We can bring energy down cheaply. In fact, uh, I want to just you know, always put a positive spin on our, on our cast. Cause I, I heard from a, a listener saying our, our balloon episode, you know, left them walking away depressed from their comments that we made. <laughs> um, so, uh, so anyway, so here's a positive spin, you know, last week in Georgia, we opened a new nuclear power plant and we can provide our own power cheaply, safely, and consistent and reliably, I'm sorry. And we can do that in the United States without the need to reach out to China for anything. And we well, can the do great it thing. And the energy, if the energy is cheap, then you can pay more for the labor because you're, you're balancing the cost against something that we're paying a lot for. And I think the future is going to be the energy cost and not the labor cost. And we've, we're seeing that all around us. And so well, there for, is a positive if we want to have a strategy to to capture China in in this in this vein. Go ahead, Adam. You're ready. You're just well, I was just going to say if, if we're going to give good news, well, the the good news is that we're now understanding just how environmentally terrible green energy actually is, and uh, electric cars are terrible for the environment. They're terrible. And we now know that our expectation of how quickly you can pay down the carbon tax on these, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot higher than we initially thought. And we're just, what we're doing is we're transferring cost from a wealthy United States to a much poorer third world China and other places where all of the lithium mines, which are environmentally very unfriendly. Yeah. And that's, and and that's Go my ahead, that's my point is and, and why I said it, that China has a strategy for their future, but it's based on some things that we can control. And there's one area we can control by getting you know somewhat away from you know some of this battery based energy sources and go to something a little bit different, which we know quite well. So that's just a, a positive nuclear power, and we've got all the coal. And all the oil we can possibly Natural use in this gas. country. Natural gas, right? Fracking is, you know, was invented my, by one of my fellow Houstonians. And so that's, you know, that's one of our great accomplishments. Although in Pennsylvania, you're having earthquakes. They're blaming fracking. Blame the Texans. But in reality, I think it's y'all's fault. But but my 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 point I, I want to bring it back to our argument here because we get we can get onto a, an energy piece here. I'm just saying that we need to have a, con, a a combined energy policy that supports our national needs and also supports our national security, and that's the sure. main and that's the the, the main walkaway. Um, and and that's what I so what do we do? I want to point out. But the other the other piece here about China being in our hemisphere, and we I don't think we touched on it. I see we're about ready to run out of time is you gave a podcast on time decision 
compression, I believe was the attack time compression. Attack That's time compression. It, yeah. Thank you. That's Curtis's term, by the way. Okay. Well, <laughs> he I'm, deserves I'll, credit. I'll, I'll give you. him due credit. Attack, uh, attack time compression. But now we're talking about someone who's right in our back door and maybe even getting closer to our back door. And I was just curious what your thoughts were, either you, you or uh, Curtis, on how that's going to affect our deterrent posture. All right. I'm going to give Curtis the last word Thank because you. we are out of time. So, yep. Curtis. All right. So, you. I don't really want us to leave on a positive note. So, I'm going to bring us back down again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, just a real quick, since we are a deterrence-oriented podcast, um, uh, to Jim's point, I think the attack time compression that occurs by having our adversary so close to us is becomes more real. Uh, this is what the Soviets, again, did when they were uh, putting ice, uh, SL, IRBMs or MRBMs, medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba, was to try to compress the attack time on us and uh, and get into our hemisphere because we had been doing it so successfully to them. And so we're seeing the same thing, is that the potential, uh, the offshoots of, of this um, access, influence, and advancement of China in, the, in South America uh, basically uh, gives them and sort of at the end of that mathematical equation, if you will, is military bases, geography in which that they can base themselves and threaten us in a different perspective, generally from the South, which we are not as well oriented against. Um, and then with them come coattails. So we now have Iranian ships docking themselves in Brazilian ports. This just happened recently, and they're and going through the uh, uh, through the Panama Canal themselves. We know that the Russians have thrown uh, have flown blackjack bombers into Venezuela um, a couple years ago in order to show us the U.S. that hey, we can be in your hemisphere too. Uh, we can muck around uh, in your backyard. And this is a deterrent threat on their part against us. They are trying to deter us from be misbehaving in their backyards, in their mindset. And so we have to understand this is sort of that tit for tat world that's going on here. But if we really want to get after China, we have to make them, uh, we have to deter them through economic, political, and military means from being in our hemisphere. That means we need to engage with our allies down south. We need to engage with them economically. And most importantly, we need to stop investing in our adversaries. Rule number one in the McGiffin playbook here, do not invest in your chief adversary. We give the Chinese way too much money in the form of trade, most of it in imbalanced trade, and access to stolen intellectual property and so forth. We have to stop that. Uh, and if we can starve them of our capital, I think we change the game globally. Okay. Well, I'm going to make that the last word. And of course, you're listening to The Nuclear View with myself, Adam Lowther, Jim Petrosky, and Curtis McGiffin, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we always, always, always encourage you to think deterrence. Bye, y'all. <laughs>